Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Uh, Martha is busy. She is hosting Jesus in the traveling entourage of followers and hangers-on that went with him everywhere he went. So she's preparing meals for them. She's readying her home for them. She's doing very much the things that you would imagine you would be doing if dozens of people uh, came into your home one day. And her sister Mary, uh, instead of helping her sister Martha, sat with the disciples. We're told she sat at Jesus' feet and listened to every word that he spoke. Well, Martha, like many an older sister throughout history, uh, came to complain against her younger sister. She said, Jesus, uh, won't you tell Mary to help me in the kitchen? Jesus, won't you uh, make her feel just a little bit guilty about being lazy while me, the dutiful older sister, does the right thing here? Jesus' words to her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the better portion, which will not be taken away from her. Mary, the one sitting at Jesus' feet, has chosen what Jesus calls here the better portion. David, in Psalm 16, says in verse 5, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Mary and David uh, show for us, uh, they are for us people who show us what it looks like to choose God as our portion, as the thing that matters most to us in life, and to dedicate our life to a life centered around delight in the presence of God. There's an interpretive tradition that grew up in the Christian church uh, in the third and fourth centuries and persisting on to today that likened Martha to the everyday Christian in the world, anxious about many things. And Mary came to uh, represent the monastic Christians, the monks and the nuns, who left the anxieties of this world to seek after the better portion, to, to cultivate a life with Christ in the caves and in the abbeys and in the monasteries, leaving the world to pursue the better portion. Now, in some ways, uh, this is in no way really based on the story, right? We have no reason to believe that Mary uh, never worked again or never helped Martha again or never lifted her finger in her vocation, whatever it was. We just know in this moment, in the presence of Jesus, she sat at his feet, right? Many of us can identify with maybe wanting, you know, we can identify with what Jesus says of Martha here. You are anxious about many things. Right? Life in this world, Jesus is right. It is marked by anxiety, by worries and concerns over our life, over our future, over our relationships. Right? Jesus nails us. We are indeed anxious about many things. And yet the answer can't be for us to leave the world in order to leave our anxieties. 
right? If I were to leave the world in order to get away from being plagued by the anxiety over many things, we would have uh, not only a church without a pastor, uh, but a wife without a husband, children without a father, uh, all of these things, right? We can't, we have to find a way to experience life and communion with God in the midst of the concerns of this life, right? In the midst of a world where we are afflicted by anxieties, where we are concerned like Martha with many things. The Protestant reformers and their critique of monasticism, of monks and nuns and all of those things. It wasn't that people shouldn't dedicate their lives with radical commitment to a life of prayer and to a life of communion with God. It was simply that that life has to be lived out in the midst of the everyday world, in the midst of our jobs and our neighborhoods and our families. And in this way, we can identify with David in Psalm 16. He starts by saying, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Right? David knew that he needed a refuge in this world. Right? Not leaving this world to get to a refuge, but he needed to have a refuge that accompanied him in this world. Because David's life, every bit as much as ours or more so, was afflicted by suffering and anxiety and worries. Right, He was, uh, by this point, the king of a nation and all of the administrative and leadership and military concerns that came with that. He also knew personal suffering. Right, Before he was king, he was hunted by the current king, bent in a murderous rage on killing his rival. David had some problems of his own making. We all may, may know the story of him and Bathsheba where he uh, took another man's wife as his own wife and then killed her husband and then... Uh, all of the chaos that that brought through his own sin, through his own lust and his own abuse and his own clinging to his power. He knew what it was. His own son grew up, Absalom, to attempt a coup against him, to overthrow him. So when David says, I found in the Lord a refuge in this world, he speaks as someone who has some experience on the matter. Someone who knew what it was to need a place to rest in the midst of the sufferings and anxieties of this world. In making God his portion, he found a refuge in the world. And so we want to learn from David in Psalm 16 uh, what it means for us to make God truly our portion, our cup, our refuge. The first thing David points us to is that we, we have to learn to recognize in God the end of all of our longing, the end of all of our longing. Verse 2, he says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. He goes on to call God his chosen portion and his cup, his inheritance. All that he has, his lot, is in God. What David's saying here when he calls God his inheritance is he's recognizing that God is ultimately the one that he longs for. That all of his longings for other things, and we all have longings for other things, desires for other things, that all of those other desires are only hints and foretastes at the one that he truly desires, a life found uh, fulfillment in communion with God. Whether this morning you find yourself yet believing the Christian message or not, surely all of us know what it is to taste something of God, to taste something of a hint of transcendence, 
whether it's in uh, the romance of a, of a new relationship, whether it's in the love and affection you feel for your children, whether it's in the beauty of a sunrise or a sunset, the majesty of the ocean, right? We all know something of what it is to taste, even if it's just for a minute. Uh, the satisfaction of a hunger for a world that's beyond this world, that's beyond what we can see and touch and know, something beyond. Author Frederica Matthews Green puts it this way, beautiful analogy. She says, my hunch is that you already sense something of God's presence or you wouldn't care. Picture yourself walking around a shopping mall, looking at people in the window displays. Suddenly you get a whiff of cinnamon. You weren't even hungry, but now you really crave a cinnamon roll. This craving isn't something you made up, there you were, minding your own business, when some drifting molecules of sugar, butter, and spice collided with a susceptible patch inside your nose. You had a real encounter with cinnamon, not a mental delusion, not an emotional projection, but the real thing. And what was the effect? You want more, and you want it right now. And if you hunger to know the presence of God, it's because you've already begun to scent God's compelling delight. You've already caught a whiff of his beauty, his love, his romance. Uh, the maybe it's in uh, all of those things that we mentioned. And in our foolishness, we often uh, mistake the foretaste for the real thing, right? We often mistake uh, the foretaste and romance for the thing itself. We often mistake that perfect bite of food or that great sip of wine for the thing itself, and we become fixated on it. But what David shows us here is that all of those things were meant to lead us beyond the thing itself, beyond the thing that we taste to the thing itself, to God himself, and to learn to find the satisfaction of our longings in him, the one who made us. Now, the language that David uses to describe this, verses 5 and 6, when he says, the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup, you hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. The language that he's using here is language uh, from the Old Testament book of Joshua. Uh, in the book of Joshua, one of the things that we see happening is the 12 tribes of Israel go into the promised land. And then the land itself is divided up among them. So that the Benjamites get their land and the Judahites get their land and everybody gets the land that was allotted to them in God's, uh, in God's plan. But there was one tribe that didn't get any land, the Levites, the people who were to become the priests of Israel. We're told of them that God himself was their inheritance. That instead of getting another inheritance, they were to live for God. That God was their portion, God was their cup, God was their inheritance. But David was not a Levite. He wasn't a priest. He was in the tribe of Judah, the royal line. And yet he applies the language of the priest to himself, saying, God himself is my portion. He is my inheritance. Because what he knows is that Israel before us and the church after them was made to be a kingdom of priests, a group of people who together, whether you are in full-time vocational Christian service or not, that all together we learn to find in Christ, in God himself, our inheritance. And so he uses this beautiful line, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. What this means is that when the lines were given out to mark off whose property was whose, 
He said, you know what? The lines have fallen for me. My property lines have fallen in a good place. I can be content with where my lot has been cast and where my boundaries are. You know, friends, until we learn to find our satisfaction in God alone, we're always going to be looking over the fence, right? Looking over our boundary line and saying, yeah, you know what? My, mine's okay, but my neighbor just got a jet ski. Like, that looks pretty sweet. Or my, my family looks okay, but look, my neighbor's family, that, that, they look great. My job's okay, but my, my brother's job, man, he just keeps getting promotions, right? Until we learn to rest our souls content in God and God alone, we're always going to be peeking over fences, not content with what's been given to us, envying our neighbors, our families, our relatives, and the stories that God's written for them where their boundary lines have fallen. But David shows us here this way to get off the treadmill that's driven by envy and to learn to rest content with God as his portion. So we learn to find our longings in God. Secondly, we learn from God how to order our lives. Look at what David says in verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. He's saying here that God is teaching him how to live. That God, now that, he's, now that he has his life ordered around communion with God, God is his portion. That now that his heart is seeking after that, all of the other stuff of life, the other things that he loves, the other things that he desires, the other passions of his life, are falling into the right order. And his heart is instructing him. God is guiding him. Sin has a way of disordering our lives. What we think will lead us to life and to fullness ends up leading us towards emptiness and chaos and disorder. But David's saying that in Christ, in God, my life is being reordered, remade, so that it fits. We see that there in verses 3 and 4. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is my delight. But the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Uh, St. Augustine, uh, or in North Florida talk, St. Augustine, said of these verses, For together with me, speaking of the church, the saints, the people that David is delighting in here, in, in here for together with me they shall possess the inheritance, the Lord himself. Let others choose for themselves portions earthly and temporal uh, to enjoy, but the portion of the saints is the Lord eternal. Let others drink of deadly pleasures the portion. My cup is the Lord. In that I say mine, I include the church, for where the head is, there is the body also. And then he says here of the infirmities or the sorrows that come of those who chase after other gods. Their infirmities have been multiplied not for their destruction but that they might long for the great physician. Now, the, what David's writing of here, the people that he, he's talking about here running after other gods, uh, this isn't that he's saying, I love and delight in Israel, in the Jews, but then I, I won't take part in those who follow other religions. He's not talking about people who follow other religions here. 
He's talking about people within Israel who add to the worship of the true God, who add to the worship of Yahweh, the practices of their neighbors. So what's going on here is uh, what's often called syncretism, right? Taking a little bit of uh, biblical faith and then adding in the worship of Baal, the worship of Molech or Asherah, the gods of Israel's neighbors, uh, the gods who often demanded human sacrifice for their appeasement. And David here is saying, I'm not going to go in that way. I'm not going to add to my relationship and my worship of the true God these other uh, dehumanizing forms of worship and idolatry because it leads only to destruction. Now, it's easy to hear something like that and think, okay, I can check that box off. I have not uh, been tempted recently to commit human sacrifice. I have not been tempted uh, recently to erect a, uh, a column to worship Baal in, the back, in my backyard. So I have, not, I have not been guilty of idolatry today. And yet the tradition on this uh, wisely is that idolatry isn't narrowly limited to the worship of physical idols, uh, not even limited to things that we are conscious of doing as worship, but that idolatry happens whenever we take any of the good things that God created, right? If you look at ancient pagan religion, it all, it all arises usually out of the divinization of good things. Sex becomes the god of fertility. The crops become the god of agriculture. Strength becomes the gods of war. Right, So it's taking good things and elevating them towards ultimate things, believing that if we have them, if we serve them, that they'll give structure, order, meaning, and fullness to our lives. And so each one of us is always capable of making up new gods to worship, perhaps worshiping the god of wealth, the god of power, the god of sex, the god of companionship, um, the god of our own comfort. I'll quote uh, two people here who probably would not like being quoted together, um, but John Calvin and Pope Francis. <clears throat> John Calvin, the great Protestant reformer, said this, the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. Right? That the human heart never tires of creating new things to become addicted to. That in the hunger and compulsiveness of our own heart, the, we are ready to find new things to attach our hearts to believing that if we find them, we find fullness. Pope Francis uh, said this, everything stems from the inability to trust God above all, to place our safety and our trust in him and to let him have the idolatry, desires in our heart. Without God's primacy, one easily falls into idolatry and is content with meager assurances. These idolatries make a mess of our lives. They make it so that there's almost nothing in our lives that we won't sacrifice to get those things that we think that we have to have. And as Augustine points us to, that these sorrows are meant not for our destruction, but they would lead us to the one who can heal us. That they would lead us to the one who can reorder our lives so that they flow and are in order under uh, his love and our love. So we receive our instruction from God, and then David points us uh, to finding our refuge in God means that we entrust him with our future. Verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. 
Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or to the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. You see here what David is doing. He says, in, in, in spite of all of the chaos around me, the many anxieties that I face, my concerns about my own, my own life and my own future, I am secure in God, right? Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. And if he stopped there, it would make sense, right? If he stopped just with saying, because I know God, I can deal with life's ups and downs, we would most of us say, okay, that makes sense. He has an inner peace that can't be shaken by the outer chaos of the world. But David doesn't stop there. He says, my flesh dwells secure. Our flesh, our bodies. Right? If there is one part of our lives that most markedly does not rest secure, it's our flesh. Right? I can assure you all with nearly 100% accuracy uh, that your flesh will not be secure through your whole life. Right, as part of our creaturely existence, we get old, we get weak, we get sick. One day we get sick and weak and don't get better, and we die. This has happened to every human being uh, that has ever lived. It will happen to you. It will happen to me. And yet David says, my flesh, my body, it dwells secure in God. Because he will not abandon me to the grave. The word here that in some translations is translated sheol and others is translated the grave uh, is simply the Old Testament word. It's the Hebrew word uh, for the life after death. It was a shadowy uh, existence. The Old Testament doesn't have anything like a fully built out theology of the afterlife. Um, but the idea here was that this is the grave. This is life after death. And David says, God won't abandon me there. God won't abandon me to the grave. Even in the grave, God's presence will be with me. To use the words of the Song of Songs, there is a love that's stronger than death. The love of God for us. And so that's a little more of a stretch, right? That's, that's something a little more of a stretch than inner peace. But David doesn't even stop there. He doesn't just say, you won't abandon my soul to the grave. Somehow I'll have this spiritual unity with God even in death. He says, my body will not see corruption. Right? Corruption here is clearly the word for what happens to a body after it dies and it goes in the ground. It is the body breaking down, the body becoming food for worms. It is, uh, it is biological decomposition. And David says, that won't happen to me. At which point we look at David and we say, I hate to break it to you, David, but it will. This is what happens, right? This is what happens to human persons. And that response is actually exactly the way that this psalm is picked up in the New Testament. That is exactly the point that Peter and Paul both make when they quote this psalm in the book of Acts. They quote, uh, this psalm is quoted in Acts 2 uh, as well as Acts 13. We'll look at the way Peter uses this psalm uh, in Acts chapter 2. So he quotes the psalm in verses 25 through 28 of Acts chapter 2. We won't read the quotation 
uh, because we've read it. But he picks up in verse 29. This is his commentary on this psalm. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with you to this day. So this is what he's saying. We actually think that where Peter is delivering this sermon on Pentecost, that the traditional site of David's grave was close. And so he reads David saying, I will not, God won't abandon me to the grave or let my soul see corruption. And he's saying, brothers, these other fellow Jews, David is right over there. He's in that box, in that hole, in that, in that place, and his body has seen corruption. So I testify to you that David both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. He's, he's over there. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, a Greek parallel to Sheol. Nor did his flesh see corruption. But this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So what Peter does with the verse is he's saying David saw through his own grave, through his own death, he saw ahead to the resurrection of Jesus. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, he then knew that retroactively that power would be brought back into his own life and he also would be resurrected from the dead. Now that is a lot to wrap your head around, right? That someone thousands of years before David before Jesus, Jesus, saw Jesus' resurrection and was able to borrow hope out of that resurrection for his own resurrection. And yet that is precisely the outlandish claim of Christianity. What David did looking forward, we do looking backwards, and quite honestly, it's not much easier. To believe that the resurrection that did happen 2,000 years ago, when Jesus was called out of the grave, that because of that resurrection, we can, stare, we can stand or sit at our own hospital beds, our own deathbeds, our own gravesides, and say, God will not abandon me to the grave or let my body see corruption. That's why the New Testament writers are so clear to point out that Jesus was raised on the third day. That the third day uh, in Israelite thought represented the day that decay started to set in on a body. The day that the body started to see corruption. And so Jesus' body was resurrected before it began to see the corrupting effects of death. And our hope is anchored into Jesus' descent to the grave. The fact that Jesus, uh, the perfect one, the only being in this world, the only physical human that's ever lived that did not deserve death. Right? Paul tells us that the wages of sin is death. But Jesus, the one that was without sin, still took on death because he took on our sin, our disorders, our addictions, and our idolatries. He took those with him to the grave so that he might also take us out of the grave towards resurrection life. David goes on to say in in, uh, in Psalm 16, right after, He will not let his Holy One see corruption. 
but you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David here essentially is charting the entire course of Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. Right, Jesus goes down into the grave. Before he sees corruption, he's risen up to new life. He ascends to the right hand of the Father in heaven where he knows joy forevermore. The author of Hebrews tells us that it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. Right, That Jesus' life is marked by a descent from heaven into the humiliation of life on earth, ultimately to the cross and to the grave. And then marked by an ascension into glory, into resurrection, and ultimately to the right hand of the Father. And that the way that we can know what David knew, can have a refuge in this world, can have a portion that can't be touched by the vagaries and chaos of this life, is to know that our life is hid with God in Christ. That we are one with Christ. We died with him, as Paul tells us, and we rose with him to new life. That in a very real way, our life, our soul is joined to the one who sits at the right hand of God. That we don't ascend to God through our own moral efforts, through our own prayer life, through our own good deeds, but we ascend with the Holy One that has ascended. And so that our life is there with him. Friends, that is some deep theology. That is stuff uh, that theologians have, have written volumes and volumes on how it can be that we, still limited by our mortal lives, are joined to the right hand of God through the Spirit and the Son. Let me tell you what that very complex theological thing means for you, what it means for us. It means there is no depth that Jesus will not go through to reach you. And there is no height to which Jesus cannot take you. There's no depth to which he can't go and won't go to reach you. He didn't stop at reaching you in the grave, in Sheol itself. Therefore, there is no other depth that you can sink to that Jesus won't go to reach you. No place you can run from him, no shame you can cover yourself in. Right? If he chased after you into the grave, he will chase after you absolutely everywhere to reach you. That any place your sin has taken you, whether it be the back alley or the corner office, uh, the prison or the country club, right? That there is no place that Jesus will not go to reach you. And when he reaches you, there is no height that he cannot take you. There is no place he will not lift you to. Some of you have heard prosperity preachers tell you that Jesus wants you healthy, wealthy, and wise. That Jesus wants you to have a high-paying job. That Jesus wants you uh, to get the uh, marriage of your dreams. You've even heard preachers tell you maybe that Jesus wants them to have a private jet. Those prosperity gospel preachers have set their sights far too low. Jesus doesn't give a rip whether you have a private jet. Jesus, though he promises to give us our daily bread, he does not promise us uh, the job of our dreams. He does not promise us wealth. He doesn't promise us a life of health. He does promise to raise you from death and to seat you at the right hand of God. 
He promises that in in him by the Spirit, you are already there. That when you go to God in prayer, even now, that you're not hurling up prayers hoping they get above the ceiling, but that you pray as one who is already sealed in Christ and at the right hand of God. That you have your Father's ear. That you have the enveloping presence of the third person of the Trinity within you and around you. Friends, there is no depth that Jesus will not go to reach you. And there is no height that Jesus cannot lift you. And so in this passage, we learn uh, what uh, the Apostle Paul already knew. And what he tells us in Romans chapter 8. For I am sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come nor powers, Not height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, many of us have at times in our lives believed that we have sunk to depths that you will not go. We have done things that we would rather hide. We have chased after pleasures, chased after our idols and our addictions in places that bring us shame. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our pursuing Lord, that you pursued us even to the depths of the grave so that you might take hold of us and raise us with you into the very presence of God. Lord, help us to live with that assurance, uh, knowing that we truly and really do have a refuge in this world, even while in the midst of its concerns and its sufferings and its anxieties, that we have a love that can never be taken from us, a love that neither height nor depth nor things present nor things to come, not even life or death itself, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, help us to find our identity, our sense of self, in knowing that our lives truly are hidden with God in Christ, awaiting the fullness of our redemption. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.